Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Great to connect. Yeah, we are continuing. I feel like it's we should rename the Roundtable some kind of meme on Baywatch. It's like Johnston watch. I think this is like week number four that we've kicked off the show with a discussion now of the kind of continuing kind of fallout around uh, the demands by parliament, the refusal by the government for public inquiry, the seeming move movement now towards some kind of inquiry, not in the bag yet, but it seems that's the direction we're going in. But where I want to start with you guys is on um, a theme that's emerged this week um, that picks up directly from Johnston's resignation last Friday, but also builds on some of the troubles, frankly, that Minister Mendocino has had around the Bernardo uh, prison transfer, a kind of, I would call it almost a, a crisis of accountability, uh, which is fascinating to to watch kind of unfolding in real time. And the first chapter of this, I'll let you guys explain the second, so I'm not talking too much, but the first chapter to come to you on, Stuart, was the director of CSIS testifying um, in no uncertain terms that, in fact, there was a memo that went into the Blair office, not as some anonymous piece of uh, vellum paper, you know, with hand scribbles on it, warning of the Chong uh, election interference, but instead an actual memo product that was designed to flag important information to the minister and his staff's attention. Uh, this really kind of, sharp contrast Stuart, between the director of CSIS's testimony and the previous public uh, remarks of Blair and the interpretation of Blair in his office and their, you know, hear, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil around the Chong information as reflected in the Johnston report. Did this surprise you, Stuart, the extent to which we seem now to be seeing really kind of sharp divergences in in the kind of narratives around this key key contention which was who had the chong information when and why wasn't it acted on yeah the the problem we had in the first place too is that the johnston report told a whole different story of what happened here you know it was about email credentials and um they weren't even allowed access to that and i I was thinking about this a little bit, and there's a, a, a few different inter inter interpretations you can have of this, but one is perhaps that that office was perfecting its story and the Johnston report um, represents an early version of the butt covering story of why they didn't get this information. So I, I, we kind of blame David Johnston for this, but you know, it's hard for him. He doesn't have subpoena powers. He doesn't have time to investigate. And he was just kind of laying out the different stories from the different actors. And this, 
Um, version of events. I mean, the first thing that I did when this broke was I spoke to Andrew House, who worked in that department um, under the Harper government. And he said, as chief of staff, I started every single day reading a bunch of stuff, half an hour, 45 minutes. I had to read deeply. I had to take it seriously. And if something like that had crossed my desk, it would have been incendiary to me and I would have floated it up. And to me, that sounds like what should happen in a government department. And that seems to me how, you know, common sense dictates the process would work. So all of this kind of smoke that we're seeing right now, I think, is just people trying to develop a story for how this never actually got to the minister in the end. What do you think, Sean? Because it's remarkable to see the, in a sense, the head of CSIS kind of go right up against the minister's uh, recollections and his own public statements. I almost wondered, again, it's all rank speculation, but I almost wondered if this was the kind of precipitating event that caused Johnston's desire to step away from the head, because maybe CSIS, maybe uh, the director informed him, look, I'm testifying next week. This is what I'm saying about Blair's office. It's different than what was in your report, as Stuart said. It's different than what the minister subsequently said. And I'm the head of CSIS, and I'm stating that there was a memo that went up with the appropriate designations and flagging that this was high-priority, mission-critical information that needed the minister's attention. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. Um, I should say a couple of things. First of all, I, I used to play hockey with David Vigneault. Uh, we can talk another time. He was a pretty good two-way defenseman with a bit of edge uh, uh, around protecting the net. Um, uh, but, I, but I was also struck um, that, well, he wasn't gratuitous uh, in terms of drawing this clear contrast with uh, what his own, or I suppose what his previous minister had said, he also uh, wasn't going to uh, uh, substantiate uh, uh, an inaccuracy, right? He he had to um, clear the air and, and clarify what had actually happened. Um, the second thing I'd say, just specifically to your hypothesis, Rudyard, I can tell you guys, having worked in government and politics, there's nothing more excruciating than getting a fact wrong, you know, uh, your 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 ultimate analysis can be wrong. I mean, in a, in a way, that's the subject of debate. But I can tell you, when I was sort of briefing up to the prime minister, the one thing you didn't want to have uh, wrong was was a basic fact, because of course it then it colored not just your advice on a particular subject. Thereafter, the, the kind of political principles would would be. Um, second guessing the information that you were putting to them all the time. And so in that sense, I think you might be onto something that um, Mr. Johnston obviously is someone who kind of values his reputation and his credibility and his integrity very highly. Um, and having put this document out um, and only hours later to have both the political arm of the government and then the public service arm essentially saying this kind of core fact was wrong. I mean, that would have rocked him. Um, it would have rocked me if I was holding the pen on something like that and and staking my own kind of credibility and reputation um, um, that I'd gotten the facts right. And so, yeah, maybe in the end it wasn't um, the political atmosphere as he as he outlined in his letter. Maybe he just started to wonder, 
what else is wrong in this report that I've put out? Uh, you start to kind of question everything and, and that would be unnerving for anyone, but particularly someone for, like David Johnston. Well, Stuart, let's go to Minister Mendicino's week from hell, um, because there are parallels here that are that I want to explore with you. And again, it goes back to this notion of ministerial accountability, which used to be a kind of cornerstone of our system of uh, responsible government, of how cabinet and its authority functions and the legitimacy upon which it rests. And I guess the parallel is that we now have uh, Mendicino playing a, a very similar tune from what seems like the Bill Blair record of greatest hits, which is, yes, it went into my office. Yes, I told you it didn't. But in fact, yes, it did. But I didn't. I never saw it. Hear no evil. See no, see no evil. Speak no evil. And yes, we'll make him, uh, changes to ensure that this doesn't happen again. I mean, Stuart, come on. Like at a certain point, like when do ministers, I don't know, just reach a level of kind of humiliation and debasement where you, this is your job. It's your office. You are the minister. Like you are responsible for the timely, accurate flow of, you know, mission critical information through your office like how do people skate and alight on this and do you think do you think he will do you think this is just nothing to see here folks move on uh we've got it under under, under control um wow i was shocked at the kind of brazenness of this yeah um this is the kind of scene that makes you think that someone's coming to the end of their tenure as a minister because if you watch Brian Passfume from the National Post actually did the work of cutting up a video of Mendicino yesterday. Um, he, This is the kind of thing that makes you realize there's panic in an office, by the way, if you ever see this, because he had testified at committee and it seemed like his staff didn't want him to talk to the media. He said, I'll go out, but what I'll do is I'll just make a statement and then I'll just walk away and surely that will go fine for me. But of course, the journalist revolted and blocked him and fired questions at him. And it just turned into a really ugly scene. The day before that, he had promised a scrum to reporters. And, you know, five hours later, it never materialized while all the reporters were standing around waiting for him, not eating, getting angrier by the hour that goes by. And <laughs> this is the kind of thing I think if you do the first five minutes of media training, it's don't make all of the reporters who cover you furious and then try to avoid them. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that, you know, Obviously, this is not their plan. Um, this is somebody who's scrambling and who doesn't have a good answer to reporters. And I, the whole idea of ministerial responsibility is that whenever anything goes wrong, you could skate on blaming underlings for years, right? You could keep blaming people. You could get away with it. And whether or not it's true, um, the buck has to stop somewhere. And that's why it's so unsatisfying to hear this. Well, you know, this person forgot to email it and then it didn't happen. And that's just not a satisfying response for someone who's supposed to be in charge of a ministry. I'll turn it over to you in a second, Rudyard, because I'd be interested in your thoughts. But um, but we should just set a, a kind of frame around this issue. I mean, the worst case scenario is that it wasn't shared with him on on purpose for the for the with the intent of plausible deniability. The best case scenario, uh, which is a which is the, the argument that sort of underpins a lot of the government's actions on these issues over the past several months is basic incompetence. Um, but it's worth remembering, you know, Guy Giorno 
who was uh, chief of staff to Stephen Harper uh, for part of my tenure in the prime minister's office, used to say that Canada is relatively unique around the world in that we uh, use taxpayer dollars to provide uh, ministers and members of the executive with political staff. Um, and the, the basic premise is that the goal of political, the purpose of political staff is to help political actors in executing their political agenda and their functions as ministers. Um, and, you know, it seems to me, you know, the minister's office, we prob probably, I'm just guessing its budget is something like a million and a half or $2 million or something like that uh, uh, in, in staff salaries and benefits and so on. Um, and this is a obvious failure. Um, you know, in what world would a member of the political arm of the government uh, put him or herself between the transmission of information from the public service to the elected official on something as fundamental as the, the transfer of one of Canada's most notorious serial killers in the country's history. Um, and, and I just, I, I, I just think it is big problem for the government. If you're left with only two explanations, <laughs> one is something somewhat sinister and the other is basic incompetence. That just seems to me is um, ultimately a kind of death nail for a government uh, over the, you know, over, over time. And what were the two answers that you had come up with the entire election inference and specifically the, the Michael Chong affair? It was either incompetence, uh, which you hope for, or something more sinister people, as you say, not being purposely, not being brief so that there was deniability or on and on and on. Um, I guess the question I have is, you know, whatever happened to accountability. And I think this case, this case this week with Mr. Mendicino, I mean, this is Paul Bernardo guys. This is the worst of the worst. Um, you know, the, the Mahafi, the French families suffering through this, it, you know, it's unacceptable. I'm sorry. It's just simply unacceptable. Uh, the transfer itself is unacceptable. Uh, giving this guy any publicity at any time to me is unacceptable. Uh, he should just, frankly, crawl in a hole and you know wait wait to die. Um, that is all, in a sense, that he is owed. So I feel I don't know. I I don't know what you think, Stuart, but I. This to me has a resonancy because unfortunately who this is and who it involves, as Sean said, the worst serial killers in modern Canadian history. And here we go again. Incompetency, you know, what's that show? You know, you door number one or door number two, incompetency or mendacity. Uh, you pick. This is where we've gotten to. Come on. Like I okay, procurement, whatever. Fine. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I can live with door number one or door number two, but Paul Bernardo, uh-uh. You got to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, I think uh, the, the political issue that arises from this too and the sort of slate of issues they're having on this. I remember talking to a, a comms person who worked in the Harper government who said, you know, it's so rarely one issue, but it is kind of this buildup of issues that look like disarray and the constant disarray that it looks like to the average Canadian. And then you throw someone like Bernardo into it where go to any Tim Hortons in Canada right now, 
they'll know what happened. And that's the kind of story governments just can't have is because most of the stuff we talk about isn't, you know, when I talk to my friends at my daughter's soccer practice, they don't actually know most of what I'm talking about. But this one will be on everyone's radar. And the message from that is that the government doesn't know what it's doing. And a minister running away from reporters and getting screamed at by reporters and having no good answers, that's the kind of thing that it doesn't take long for that to become an existential problem for a government. Let me give you the last word, Sean. So one, is Medicino gone? Um, are we looking at a cabinet shuffle uh, once the House rises? What are you kind of looking for here to... I would say for a government to acknowledge what has been a disastrous six months, or is it just is a sign of the kind of the chaos, the fact that we will just this government will limp into the summer, um, nothing will happen, and we'll be back at this all again with the same cast of characters and the same options, door number one, door number two, and competency or mendacity, you know, come mid-September. I think there will be a cabinet shuffle. Um, you know, Stewart's our man in Ottawa, but I've, I've heard kind of increasing rumblings that uh, Christia Freeland might leave over the summer, which would necessitate um, a more substantial cabinet shuffle, not merely um, discarding dead wood like Mendicino, but but uh, a, a bigger transformation of the of the government's front bench. But I'm not sure it'll matter a great deal, guys. The government is trying to do something that very few governments in modern Canadian history have been able to achieve, which is to reinvent itself after a prolonged time in office. Um, I can't think of many examples where um, where that was successful. Um, Christy Clark in British Columbia managed to win one more majority by bringing in an, a new leader and changing the message a bit with a greater focus on the economy um, than had been the case um, in the weeks and months leading to her um, becoming leader, but but the the other side of uh, has a lot more examples of governments just growing tired and decadent, um, in, including the Harper government of which I was a part. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, it uh, it was pretty obvious by late 2014 that um, that the government had reached something of a best before date, um, and I don't think there's any reason to believe um, that this government is going to be able to. Um, reinvent itself. In fact, you increasingly get the case that at this stage, what it has left, and this may be a good segue into our later conversation about the upcoming by-elections, is to try to paint uh, the conservatives as radical or extreme. Um, and, you know, that might help you win the occasional race, um, but it's it's not going to sustain uh, a government. I, I think this past several weeks has kind of signaled that the government is reaching its own um, best before date. Yeah, I think there's some polling out this week, something like 80% of Canadians now saying, you know, it's time for change. Now, whether that's time for a conservative government, NDP government, that's for voters to figure out. But boy, I would think if their internal polling is showing anything close to that, you know, that impetus for change is often, you know, the death knell of a leader and a party as you say, Sean, seven years into this is going to try to reinvent itself to push back against that kind of tsunami of public opinion. Uh, that is a tough job indeed. Well, let's take a quick break. Back on the other side with a dissection of four big by-elections that are coming up. 
number of issues at stake here, especially for Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party. Um, a litmus test of sorts. Uh, what does it all mean? What could happen? We'll get into it right after this break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the, the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the Hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome back to the Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. So, Stuart, um, your colleague at The Hub, Jeff Ross, had a piece out today, Friday the 16th, as we record this, of June, about uh, by-elections happening. Specifically, let's focus on the start with the ones in Manitoba. Um, that could be an important test for Pierre Polyev. Um unpack for us what uh, Jeff's key insights were and where you think this could land up um, come Tuesday evening uh, into next week. Yeah, so this is the topic that nobody at my daughter's soccer practice was talking about last night, but it is still really interesting. There is something of a microcosm here um, in Manitoba where um, the thing that Jeff kind of realized we were chatting about this um, is that They've got this battle against Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, in this writing that his party did their best in in the last election. They got over 20 percent of the vote. Um, so he's staking everything on that. Uh, Bernier is. And the conservatives kind of have to show that they can push back on that kind of populist insurgency that probably reached a peak during the pandemic. Um, but getting the leader in there will certainly make it interesting. Um, the other one is. Jim Carr's old riding in Winnipeg, which is an urban riding. Um, and, you know, I, I think probably if you were prognosticating, you would say the Liberals are likely to win, but the Conservatives have more of a chance than you might think. And also they won it in 2011 um, when the Conservatives won their majority victories. So you kind of see this dynamic of the two tasks that Pierre Polyev has, which is to beat back Bernier and that insurgency on the right, and then also to be appealing to these people who are generally swing voters and who, when the conservatives win a majority, those are the people you need to convince to come over to your side, whether they're swing voters or people who just don't normally vote, you need to get that extra batch of voters. So um, we probably didn't do the conservatives any favors this morning with Jeff's piece, kind of showing the best case scenario for Polyev. Um, I know they will uh, want to lower expectations on this, but winning both those ridings would be a huge statement. Um, and then if they lose in Winnipeg and then they beat Bernier really badly, I think they'd be pretty happy with that alone. Yeah, it's a great piece. Uh uh Stuart and Rudyard that I'd encourage our listeners to check out um it, it's just worth 
unpacking some of uh, Stuart's insights there. The, you know, the one way, Roger, that I've come to think of the political conundrum facing the Conservative Party of Canada is that it has the highest floor of support of any of the major parties, but it has a lower ceiling than the Liberals. You know, that is to say, it's never really fallen below 26, 27, 28 percent of support, but it has a hard time pushing up beyond, say, 33, 34 uh, percent. Aaron O'Toole, the outgoing leader, who incidentally uh, will step away from politics altogether uh, when the House rises in the next week or so, sought to raise the ceiling of support by essentially positioning himself as something of a moderate or a centrist. And the problem, of course, uh, we know in hindsight is that the party's floor of support started to sag. Um, the People's Party of Canada did something like 5% of the vote nationally in the last election. And so as Stuart says, Polyev is essentially trying to, on one hand, uh, solidify the party's floor of support by going after Maxime Bernier and the People's Party in, uh, in Portage at the same time that it, he raises the ceiling of support by winning a riding um, like this urban or suburban one in and around the city of, of Winnipeg. That's a, a difficult balance because in some ways the messages and the issues that you prioritize uh, to, to uh, deal with the People's Party at, at, is at risk of, of possibly marginalizing or alienating the voters that you need uh, to raise the, the, the ceiling of support. Um, and so I think as, as Jeff outlines in his article today, uh, it's a, it'll be an interesting kind of test. Is Polyev the right messenger and does he have the right strategy uh, to uh, to deal with this ceiling floor problem, which has really been at the heart of the challenges the Conservative Party has had um, uh, in the past few elections. Let's talk a little bit more about Maxime Bernier, Stuart. Um, some initial polling, again, these are small samples in a small riding, I mean, comparatively to what surveys normally would take as their focus in terms of geography. But they're showing you know, pretty decent support um, for the People's Party leader, you know, in the high 20s. What's your sense here of what Bernier has done? I mean, look, there's many reasons you could be critical of Bernier, things he's said, um, whether this is all a giant vanity project or not. But it's remarkable to have, you know, a Quebec francophone <laughs> running in Manitoba in in this riding and arguably performing pretty well so far. Yeah, there is going to be a really interesting um, situation on Monday where the organization of the Conservative Party, getting people out to vote, especially in a by-election where the turnout will probably be low, will be so important compared to this kind of organic energy. And I say organic just because there's not really much going on other than Max out there. So it's not like they're doing a lot of stuff uh, in that riding. And that... I, I spoke actually spoke to some PPC people um, last year and said, where do you guys go from here? Because you had the pandemic, it juiced your vote a little bit, but you didn't get any seats. What's the next step? And it seemed to me that they thought the pandemic energy was on the way out and it wasn't something they could rely on. So um, I'm curious what's activating this. And one of the theories that I had with Polyev coming in as leader is that he would sort of push back a little bit on the PPC stuff because, you know, he wasn't afraid. Uh, he wasn't afraid to embrace the convoy. He's not afraid to speak in a sort of rhetorical way that, you know, I, I think the populists like. Um, 
this is the kind of thing that the conventional wisdom says costs him these swing voters. But if we get into a by-election on Monday, and it's not just costing him swing voters, but he's also not even getting the PPC people, I think that'll be a real question for Polyev. Yeah, it's just worth observing, guys, um, that our first-past-the-post system can obscure or conceal the fact that there is a number of Canadians with misgivings about Canadian immigration policy. Um, you know, in a proportional representation model, uh, uh, a party explicitly opposed to the high rates of immigration that we have in Canada would get, I don't know what the number is, you know, maybe double digit a uh, 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 level of of support and um and yet of course none of the major parties have brought expression um to that um that political position um and i i think uh because our first past the post system doesn't reward those kind of small robust minorities the people's party is never going to be a, a major player uh nationally but in these uh, one-off by-elections, um, it can pull meaningful support away from the Conservative Party. Um, you know, the fact remains, however, as Stewart says, this riding is so solid for the Conservatives that even though the PPC pulled away 20 points or something like that in 2021, Candace Bergen um, still was able to, to, to win the riding. So I, I don't think it, um, I don't think that the Conservatives are at risk of losing the riding, but if he pulls well, it may not. It may mean that they haven't kind of put the stake through the heart of of the PPC as much as I think the conservatives would would like to think. What What's your take on that race, Rudyard? And and maybe you know some of the bigger issues at play in these by elections. Should we care about them? I guess is often the question that people that people ask. I, d I don't think you know they really met, resonate that much with the larger electorate. At least history would would suggest that. I mean, you can look at the. The recent uh, by-election here in Ontario, the Conservatives worked hard on and uh, lost to, you know, Charles D'Souza, the the former Liberal um, cabinet minister under the, in the Wynn government. Um, who, I mean, that didn't surprise me. He was a popular cabinet minister. He was from from the, uh, his riding. Uh, that seemed like a fait accompli, and we're not talking about that uh, four months later. This maybe, though, is a little bit more significant because of Maxine Bernier's participation. And then, guys, the other side, the other story um, in Winnipeg is, you know, fighting the liberals on a, on a seat that the conservatives think could be competitive. So I think what could be a subject for discussion, as you said in the first half of the show, Sean, is if the conservatives have a bad night and let's say... Uh, don't crush Bernier. Maybe Bernier loses, but he shows up with a decent vote and does, as you say, Sean, uh, doesn't allow Polyev to pull from his own constituency and then compound that by a loss to the liberals. Who knows? <laughs> the whole narrative could change and we could suddenly be talking about, you know, why the conservatives seem to be losing with voters to their right and voters to their left. And what the heck is the strategy then if you're making nobody happy all of the time? Now, the opposite could happen and ever the stars could align for Pierre Polyev 
And then, boy, um, you know, we will be wrapping up this legislative session in Ottawa with some very dour liberals who will be looking at a seeming, um, you know, contender here who is doing exactly what he wants to do, which is running the board on the right and the left and building, in a sense, that potential, as we know from past times from the Harper government, that kind of winning coalition of suburban, exurban voters focused on the economy, on pocketbook issues, and keeping the right flank of the party held close so you don't get that unfortunate vote splitting in key competitive races uh, across the country. Let's give you the last word in this, uh, Stuart. Um, where I'm going to put you on the spot. How do you think this is going to break out? Is it going to be the usual kind of draw? Do you sense maybe a chance here for a bit more momentum for the conservatives just because the liberals have had such a lousy six months? I would think that that has to weigh on voters. What is it? South, South Winnipeg or something is the riding. Um, that has got to be suppressing their vote, making it more difficult to get people organized, excited, out canvassing, out pulling the vote. Yeah, the one thing the Liberals have in their favor is that Jim Carr was a big name and his son is writing is running in the writing. Um, so that name recognition, especially in a by-election, will probably go a long way. And I'm also a fan of the Paul Wells axiom, which I'll butcher here, but it's roughly along the lines of Canadian politics always trends towards the least interesting outcome. Um, so I think if you look at the most um, obvious outcome, it's that the Conservatives will win um, against Bernier, but won't quite put him away. Um, the Liberals will win in Winnipeg. Oxford and Ontario is pretty interesting because that could be a real dogfight. That's one of those ridings that polling shows us it's it's pretty tight. Um, so the Liberals, the Conservatives would want to win that riding. And that would be a coup for the Liberals if they could take it. Um, but least interesting outcome is the Conservatives just win that one. And then in Quebec, we have Mark Garneau's seat up. That'll probably be a Liberal victory almost assuredly. Um, so I think that's probably what we'll see. But, um, you know, whatever happens here, the Liberal energy is in all these kind of ongoing scandals and the stuff they just can't get out from under. Um, you know, a by-election gives you about one day of good vibes and then it's back to work. The only thing I'd say, guys, before we wrap up is it's it's 945 on Friday morning. I just hope that nothing happens this afternoon <laughs> to supersede our conversation. Like last Friday, we 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 started talking about David Johnson. And by the time we were done, he would he had resigned. So fingers crossed we can go into the weekend and people can count on what they've heard from us today. Yeah, What is it, Stuart? 530 Friday afternoon seems to yeah. be like. The moment you roll the coffins out of the mortuary. He must have had some PR, PR pros working for him to know to do it then. <laughs> maybe maybe Minister Mendicino will be issuing a press release this <laughs> afternoon at 5.30. I'm pursuing other opportunities. My, <laughs> look forward to spending time with friends and family. Uh, we will see. Everybody have a great weekend and we'll do this all again next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. 
And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.